Frank Sinatra, big name, musician, from a generation ago. If, if Sinatra had a signature song, it was, I did it my way. Yeah, I did it my way. And uh, there's a line in that song, regrets, I've had a few, but too few to mention. And the message there is, man, you, you do you. You do life. You, you want to max out on life. You do life your way, and you don't let anybody tell you nothing. No, no, you do you. That's our culture. The God of the Bible would categorically disagree, like 180 degrees. You do life my way. You subjugate yourself, your will, your desires to me. Well, that flies in the face of our culture. Why? Why would we do life God's way? I think there's a good reason to, and I want to talk about it today. So if you've got a Bible, if you'd open it to 1 Samuel chapter 13, we're going to go all the way through this chapter wrestling with that question, why should we do life God's way? Why should we do life God's way? If you haven't been with us, with us we're going through the message sermon series called Reliant. It's a study of the books of First and Second Samuel, and it is Israel's transition from a loose federation of states to a monarchy under a king. And the book opened with a lady named Hannah who was dealing with infertility. She prayed, Lord, if you'd give me a son, I'd dedicate him to the Lord. And in fact, God did. His name was Samuel, and she dedicated him to the Lord. And Samuel became God's spokesperson, has become God's prophet. He's God's voice to the nation of Israel. Israel's in the promised land, but one of the things that's plaguing them is they're feeling threatened. And rather than saying, we're going to trust God, they say, well, you know, we want a king. Because, man, the, the countries we see that are, we want a king. And Samuel says, okay, that's a bad idea. And he lays out, this king's going to take, and he's going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take, and he's going to take. I don't care. We want a king. God said, okay, you can have your king. And you will learn that ultimately who you need is not a king, but it's me. So Saul is anointed as the first king, but the wording's very interesting. Um, instead of using the word for king, God used the word for prince or ruler. You're not a king with complete autonomy. You're a king under my authority. So that's where we start in 1 Samuel 13. Verse 1 says this, Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. Now I'm using a New American Standard. Uh, I don't know what version you have, but in, in my Version 30 and 40 are in italicized because they're not in most manuscripts. That's a guess by translators and scholars. Uh, they don't know what those numbers were. But I think this verse is important because it tells us there's a formal st start to God's reign. Verse 2 says, Now Samuel chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, of which 2,000 were Saul in Michmash, and in the hill country of Bethel, while 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah, of Benjamin, but he sent away the rest of the people, each to his tent. A couple things to note there. Saul's uh, in Michmash. It's under Israeli control. By the end of the chapter, it will not be under Israeli control. Second thing, there's a total of 3,000 soldiers. Keep that number in mind. Verse 3 and 4, Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines. Jonathan is introduced. We will find out that he is Saul's son. Uh, that was in Gibeah. And the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the, Israel, the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard the news that Saul, I thought it was Jonathan, Saul 
That's meant in the garrison of the Philistines. Why, why, whoa, 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 why, why did, what was Jonathan's victory become Saul's? It's a guess, but I would say Saul and his insecurity need to take credit for that. And it doesn't speak well that he's not committed to integrity. Something about I may lose traction, I may, the people may not, so he changes it a little bit. That ought to concern us in a leader. And also, that Israel had become odious to the Philistines. The people were then summoned to Saul at Gilgal. And we'll tell that, we'll find out in just a little bit that when, when um, Samuel anointed Saul's king, he said, I want you to go to Gilgal and I want you to wait for me. So, so here's where they are, they're at Gilgal. Uh, in verse 5, we get a little bit of um, insight on the strength of the Philistine army. Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen. And people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. And they came up to and camped in Michmash, east of Beth Haven. How many soldiers did Israel have? Did we count? 3,000. Got 30,000 chariots. They won't be great in the hill country, but it's an intimidating number. And 6,000 horsemen. How are you feeling about the odds if you're one of the Jewish soldiers? We'll get there in verses 19 to 23. We'll also find out that the um, Philistines have superior weapons. This isn't going great if you're an Israeli soldier. Verses 6 and 7. When the men, men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, you bet they're in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed. Then the people hid themselves in caves, in thickets, in cliffs, in cellars, and in pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Saul is still in Gilgal. And he was told by Samuel when he was anointed, I want you to go to Gilgal and I want you to wait. I want us to look at 1 Samuel 10, verse 8. Here's what it says. And you, Saul, shall go down before me, me being Samuel, the prophet of God, to Gilgal. And behold, I, not you, I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. Saul, so I'm, I'm going to be offering those things. Uh, you shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do. This is God's prophet saying, Saul, you need to go to Gilgal. You need to wait. And I'm going to come and I'm going to offer the burnt offerings. And we talked about doing life God's way. Part of that means if we're committed to that, you're not going to have to wait on God. We're going to want to move forward, and God's going to say, oh, you need to wait. Like, I, I want out of this job, and there's this other job, and, and I want to go, and God says, no, I, I need you to wait. You know, I've been single now for uh, how long? And I can't remember the last time I had a date. And there's this possibility, but this person doesn't show Christian character. You need to wait. You need to turn away from that. Why? Because we're committed to doing life God's way according to God's principles. 20 years ago, this week, we packed up our car and we packed up a U-Haul from Sierra Vista, which is down in the southeast corner of Arizona and begin our trek to Lincoln, Nebraska. 
And I would start a job on October 1st of 2002 at Lincoln Bream Church as a singles pastor. And Lincoln has turned out to be the promised land for us for, for a number of reasons as a family. But that almost didn't happen. In March of that year, March 1st of that year, the elders and I decided, hey, this is just not a good fit. Why don't you take six months and look and we'll look. And so March 1 to September 1 was my season to look. They would pay me to be their pastor. And so we'd go, well, we, a month into that, there's a church in Tucson, which is just an hour north. And they're looking for a pastor. And I put in a resume and they call me and they have me up on a Saturday and they tour me around the church and they interview me. And, 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 and so it goes and we get done and we put the kids, the kids are nine months old and three and a half years old. We put them in their car seats. We close the door and we put in reverse and pull out. And my wife, Hope, says to me, Andy, they're going to come. They're going to ask you to come candidate. And I think, great, because I need a job and I'm on the clock and I've got five months. So that's great. But she hasn't finished. She said, they're going to ask you to come candidate. And I don't think you should do it. And I think that's not great. That's not what I wanted to hear. I got a little snippy. I know it's hard to believe that a pastor might get a little snippy. But I said, you know those two boys in the back seat? They sure are cute, but they have no earning power. And we've got a mortgage, and we've got bills, and I need a job. And she said, yeah, but Andy, we said we were going to trust God. We're going to wait. Now, I don't know, how many of you are married in here? How many married people do you have? Have you, ever had a, have you ever had a quiet drive? It's about an hour back to service. It's pretty quiet. Pretty quiet. Not a lot being said in there. Pretty quiet. And we pulled into the driveway, and she says, I've changed my mind. I've changed my mind. You want to take that job in Tucson? Go ahead. But it's the exact same church we're leaving in Sierra Vista. I would much rather live in Sierra Vista. It's cooler. It's nicer. So would you just go back to the elders? They will take you back. They will take you back if you will stay. Would you just go back to the elders and say, we're staying? At this point, I'm thinking of every verse in the Bible that talks about women being silent. <laughs> I'm stewing. And sure enough, the email comes the next day. We want you to come candidate. And as I read that email, I thought, she's right. This isn't it. But, you know, it took me another day to finally type back and say, no, thank you. I just don't feel like God's leading. Why? Because I didn't want to wait. I wanted a job on my time right now. You serious? Are you serious about doing life God's way as opposed to your way? It's going to stretch you. It's going to push you. You're going to have to wait. You're going to have to trust. God's going to come through. Saul doesn't do a very good job of that. Verse 8. Now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring to me the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. And he, in direct disobedience to Samuel, offered the burnt offering. And when you know it, verse 10, as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, who shows up? Behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. But Samuel said, what have you done? What have you done? Now, this would have been a great time for Saul to say, you know what? I sinned. I took things. I got scared. I freaked out. I thought the people were leaving. And I, would you pray to God to forgive me? 
Samuel doesn't, or Saul doesn't do that. Look what he does. And Saul said, Because I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the appointed days and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, therefore I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced my, oh, it's so hard, so hard. I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. You know what that is? That's a rationalization. I was wrong. I knew I was wrong, but I'm going to rationalize it. How's that going to play? Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but he's not going to. But now your kingdom shall not endure. Verse 14, the Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And we will find out in the course of 1 Samuel that man is David. And the Lord has appointed him as a ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. The heart, biblically, is the place from which we live life. It's where we make decisions. It's our values. It's our priorities. God's saying through Samuel, Saul, God wants a king that's going to make decisions in line with God's heart, with what matters to God. You didn't do that. I can't have you. He can't have you as king. See, we're, we're, we're wrestling with this question. Why? Why on earth? Why should we do life God's way? Here's how it rolls. God establishes and upholds people who do life his way. God establishes and he upholds people who do life his way. I want to say we all, we're all flawed. We all blow it. We all take things into our own hands. The thing we need to do is repent. Is, is it right now we need to turn. And, and whatever that looks like, we're moving towards God. We're, we're stepping away from that. The tendency is to rationalize. God is long-suffering and God is patient. But there's a time he will say it like he did here with Saul. Enough. We don't want to get close to that line. If you have moved from doing life God's way, may I beg you to turn back lest you suffer consequences. We suffer consequences like Saul. Verse 15, then Samuel arose and went from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. What was his army to start? This is going the wrong way, people. We've gone from 3,000 to 600. Now Saul and his son Jonathan and the people who were present with him we're staying in Jeba of Benjamin while the Philistines camped at Michmash. Michmash is now under Philistine control. In verse 2, it was under Jewish control. And the raiders came from the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned to Ophrah, to the land of Shul. Another company turned toward Bethron. And another company turned toward the border which overlooks the valley of Zebium, toward the wilderness. They're, they're breaking into three groups to try and surround Israel. If that's not enough, we find out about the difference in weapons in verses 19 through 23. And no blacksmith could be found in all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines, each to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his hoe. That's what they're going to use in battle. Philistine, or the Philistines are going to use swords and spears. The charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares, mattocks, the forks, and the axes, and to fix the hoes. So it came about on the day of the battle with, that neither sword nor spear was found in the hands of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Jonathan and his son 
Saul and his son Jonathan. So two people are armed with swords and spears. The rest of them have clubs and slings against this 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen army with swords and spears. And the garrisons of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. How do you think this battle's going to go? If you're betting, where are you putting your money? Well, come back next week. We'll find out how it goes in 1 Samuel 14. Outcome might surprise you. Doing life God's way. It, it preaches good on Sunday, doesn't it? I mean, that sounds good. We're all on board with that. But it's hard. Because we want control. And we don't want to be stretched. But learning to trust God is exactly that. It's learning. It's growing. It's stepping into it. I alluded to it here. In a couple of three chapters, David will be anointed as the new king of Israel. He will replace Saul. He is the man after God's own heart. You would think it'll be an easy path for him to the kingship. No, it won't. It will be safe. No, it will be anything but safe. It'll be anywhere from 10 to 13 years of a madman, Saul, chasing him around. Why? Does God allow this? So David could learn what Saul didn't get. You need to depend on me in every and any circumstance. Mark Buchanan wrote a book entitled, Your God is Too Safe. Your God is too safe. And by way of analogy, he showed what we want and what we expect from God. He shared a, a survey from the rangers at Bridger Wilderness Park in Wyoming. So they asked people for comments and they asked people for suggestions. What would you tell us about our park? I want us to look at some of these things they put down. They said one of them was trails need to be reconstructed. Please avoid building trails that go uphill. <laughs> Too many bugs, leeches, spiders, and spider webs. Please spray the wilderness to rid the area of these pests. Chairlifts are needed in some places so we can get to wonderful views without having to hike. The coyotes, they're a problem. The coyotes made too much noise last night and kept me awake. Please eradicate these annoying animals. A small deer came into my camp and stole my jar of pickles. Is there a way I can be reimbursed? A McDonald's would be nice at the trailhead. Too many rocks on the mountain. People, you're in the wilderness. It ain't the wilderness. If these changes are made. But isn't that what we want of God? Just smooth. I try to smooth. And God's going to allow that stuff so we can learn and be molded and shaped that we might do life His way. Listen, doing life God's way is going to push you. For me, what I care about most right now, doing life God's way, means I need to shut my this area. I got all kinds of things. I got all people. I got wisdom, wisdom, wisdom. Shut your mouth and pray and trust me. Others of you, it means you need to initiate a conversation. Relationship's been bad a long time and you need to see a text or some, an email. Can, can we talk about this? Some of you doing life God's way 
means to leave. You need to leave what you know. When I started out in ministry, I had it all planned out to be a major university in the South. And they put me in Colorado. I didn't know anybody in Colorado. But doing life God's way means, meant I left everything, everyone I knew to a new place. For you, maybe, doing God's li- life God's way means you're stepping back to people you know. Doing God's life God's way may mean you need to change business practices. You've been billing for monitoring email, and that, that's not, and that's, that's the company. They, they want you to produce, but would you wrestle with what does it mean to do life God's way? Probably not going to be safe. But that shouldn't surprise us. I want us to think about our Savior Jesus for just a minute. Fully God, fully humans, the hypostatic union, those two come together. Here's what the writer of Hebrews said about Jesus in chapter 5, verse 8. Although he, Jesus, was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. The fully human Jesus had to grow and learn in his experience with God. Would we say to that Jesus, would you recreate your spirit in me? Would I be one who who steps into doing life God's way, even when it's not safe, even when it means I have to wait, even when it means, yes, I might even have to suffer? Why should we do life God's way? God establishes and upholds people who do life his way. Would you pray with me? Our God in heaven, we're grateful for this example and and the failings. A king who failed because he couldn't wait. He wouldn't wait. Lord, would we grow from that? Would you, Spirit, would you you impress that upon us? And then would you take our Savior, Jesus, who who learned obedience from things he suffered? Would would we learn to uh, relinquish control in our lives and, 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 and do life your way? Empower us, Lord, with your spirit to that end, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.